Welcome back to another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work Guide Live B2B Jam Session with your boy Tim Salau, CEO of Guide, Mr. Future of Work. So today on this lovely Tuesday, I have an amazing guest, but more importantly, wherever you're tuning in from this lovely, lovely morning in Oakland, California, please show us some love. Oakland, if you are listening and viewing and you're in the house, hey, say what's up, Tim. Say how's he going? Say what's he doing? Or how are you doing? And more importantly, once again, rest in peace to the late, great Chad Bozeman, who I'm still personally reeling um, from the loss and all that's going on in the violence and the protesting once again happening. You know, I hope that America will be better tomorrow and beyond. So please hang in there if you are feeling the emotional weight of what's going on in the world right now. But more importantly, if you are doing something positive today, if you're doing something positive with your family, with your friends, let us know in the comments, show us some love. More importantly, I want you to show love to the awesome guest that I'm going to have the honor of actually bringing on in a few minutes. So if you're tuning in from Oakland, let us know in the comments. If you're tuning in from California, because he's based in Cali, I believe, <laughs> we'll check in with him and ask him. If you're if you're tuning in from Cali, let us know in the comments. If you're tuning in from Houston, which is where I grew up, let me know in the comments and I'll show you some love as well. And keep in mind, as I talk to the late and to the amazing David Bland, please show us some love because David, he's the founder, author, and CEO of Precoil. Yep, yep, prequel. And it's essentially his firm that allows you, that, that he uses and leads to really help you as an entrepreneur test your business ideas. So whatever business ideas that you have, whatever vision that you have for your business, if you're an enterprise or even an entrepreneur, David is the man to go to to really help you iterate and test your business ideas. And we're going to talk about his latest book around just that. How do you generate business models? And fundamentally, some of the things that are going on right now within our venture and entrepreneurship ecosystem. You know, if you have trouble distilling complex ideas and really putting them down into a clear, concise product or vision, David's the man to go to. And fundamentally, I want you all to show him some love. And let me know if you have any questions for David and you're trying to get your business together or you're trying to say, okay, what can I do post-COVID-19 so I can build a billion-dollar company? This is the man to ask. So we're really going to dive deep on his background, what he does, and more importantly, some of his thoughts on how the entrepreneurial ecosystem has changed. And fundamentally, oh, oops. Boom. And fundamentally, right back, y'all. <laughs> My bad for the technical difficulties. And fundamentally, what can we all do to, one, elevate the role of underrepresented founders in the venture capital ecosystem, but also ensure that teams who are building these amazing ideas are diverse, more importantly, and are able to build ideas to scale? With that said, let me show love to David and bring him on. David, what's up, man? Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. Morning, man. Happy happy Tuesday morning from California. Yeah, yeah. I'm in NorCal too. Um, oh, recently cool. relocated though. I was outside Oakland um, it, through the Caldecott Tunnel, so where it's a lot warmer uh, um, near Walnut Creek, and then uh, just moved to the Sacramento region. So that's a big change for me and trying oh, to get integrated up here. So yeah, it's uh, been a pretty recent couple weeks ago. How are you enjoying Sacramento, man? Yeah, it's it's hard when it's everything's locked down. You know, like. <laughs> I wake up and I check fire mappers to make sure like I don't have to evacuate. And then I uh, pretty much on Zoom all day. So uh, hopefully I can explore more. Um, but yeah, just 
just love California though. I mean, I love being out here. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm really starting to get Zoom fatigue personally, man. It's like I have to tell people now, look, just call me on the phone. All right. <laughs> like just like, let's just do a let's just do a Zoom sound call, you know? Yeah, it's exhausting. And it's it's the it's the emotional thing. Like you're waiting for an exact kind of like immediate response to how you say something. And then there's always a delay. And you're like, wow, am I an idiot? They they don't understand. And then they'd get it. It's just it's just this delay, you know, that happens. Yeah. It's it's just so exhausting all day. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, we'd love for you to share a little bit with us. A shout-out to Raj, who's tuning in right now from Atlanta. Shout-out to Atlanta, Georgia, in the house. You know, Dave, we'd love for you to share a little bit more about how long you've been building Precoil and kind of what inspired it, man. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in startups. So um, I went to school for design and then joined startups and kind of rode that way for about 11 years. Um, the first startup I joined, it's really interesting. We thought we were B2C. We ended up being B2B, and then we were took we took off there. Um and um, we were acquired in, in 2006. And um, the other two didn't go so well. You know, we just kept persevering no matter what, ignoring, you know, customer feedback. They didn't really care what we were building. Didn't matter how many nights and weekends I spent building stuff. Uh, if they didn't want it, they, they didn't want it. Yeah. So um, after about the third one was kind of winding down, I decided to kind of move to the Bay Area and just start advising companies, you know. So I was like, hey, learn from my mistakes. <laughs> and so bounced around uh, a couple agencies and then just started just started to uh, design my own. I was like, hey, let's let's see if I can do this on my own. And so that's what I've been doing uh, for about almost like five years now. Just help some accelerators out here. But I also I mean, I help uh, some of the biggest companies in the world. So it's, it's really interesting. And it's all around how do they test ideas? How do they test businesses and, and test products? Yeah. What moment for you did you realize, wow, man, like this is something I can actually do, you know, engage with entrepreneurs and help them really think about how do they scale their business and really ideate to scale? Yeah, I kind of fell into it, you know, um, I kind of lived the startup life and all kinds of different roles at startups. So I, I, I feel when someone goes, oh, I, this is so hard. And I know because because I lived it. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, it. it I think my personality kind of comes into play here. Uh, my mom used to say I don't even get excited at Christmas. And so I thought I could probably help, you know, just matter of fact, explain things to people in a way they're like, oh, yeah, I got this. Like this is this guy like thinks this is all under control, you know. So I think my personality really just helped um, So in my design background, being able to kind of draw things out and explain really complex things to people. So. Yeah, I never would have dreamed this would be my life, but you know, I happen to be pretty good at it, so I'm I'm just gonna run with it. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny how you know the the things that we don't think we're great at is often the things that we lead to and actually make us the most money eventually. <laughs> yeah, and so um, the thing is, like, I I would have loved to get some advice. You know, yeah. like we didn't call it a pivot back then. Like we just didn't want to move back in with our parents and and, and yeah. go broke. You know, so. Like there's a lot of stuff we could have used data better. There's so many things like we're just light years ahead of, you know, where we were in the early 2000s, late 90s. So, yeah, anything I can do to kind of give back to the community and help people just make progress. I mean, it's it's just such a terrible feeling to be stuck and feel like, yeah. oh, man, you just can't sleep at night. And, and yeah, it's it's uh, anything I could do to help that I, I'm super willing to do. Yeah, no, that's really incredibly founder friendly of you. You know, I want to ask you, you know, for you, you know. What had been giving your your latest book, testing business ideas? What would you say are like the three most important kind of frameworks that founders or entrepreneurs who want to build a, a business in a post COVID nineteen reality? What should they start thinking about? How should they start thinking about iterating on their ideas, man? 
Yeah, well, first to get it out of your head. I mean, I, I, I talk to so many brilliant people, right? And they, they just, they need to be able to do storytelling. They need to be able to tell a story about what they're working on in a way people get it, you know? And they need to visualize it. And, and so much of that, it could be a canvas, it could be some sort of, you know, wall where you're putting stickies on it, but it can't stay in your head. Like it'll make sense up until lunchtime and then it won't make sense anymore, you know? And so getting out of your head, being able to tell a story, and then just kind of understanding where your biggest risk is. So total, you know, lean startup kind of thinking there of what's my riskiest assumption? How do I go test that thing? Because you can do a lot of stuff and stay busy, but if you're not addressing like the biggest thing that'll kill your startup idea, then you're just kind of pushing that risk down the road, you know, and it's not going to go away. So, you know, anything you can do to go after, hey, what's the riskiest thing and what can I do right now to feel a little better about that if I'm on the right track? Yeah, so really de-risking kind of your product strategy in your long-term roadmap. You know, it's funny because, you know, a lot of founders often think about their business from the standpoint of go, 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 go. Let me try to grow as fast as possible. And me personally don't believe in that in that philosophy, believe in this philosophy around how do you create validated learning around your product, around your business. And it goes to your point, David, about, you know, you really have to de-risk the riskiest part of the business. Yeah. And I think we're seeing some of this kind of come back, you know, like boomerang back at us. So there's all these things in the Valley that got funded that really never had a sustainable business model. You know, it's when you rely on contractors and you don't really treat them as employees and you, and you scale that thing and you just keep raising money to keep going. Um, I, I think we're, and it, it, what's crazy about that. You put all your competition, uh, they, they can't keep up because they can't keep up with that kind of funding. Then you yeah. IPO and they're like, oh, we just can't sustain. And it's just like, what's going on? Like, there, you know, having a sustainable business model, it's something you need to be thinking about really, really early on as a founder, you know, because you just scale that unsustainable thing. It's going to collapse at some point. Uh, you can't just raise, you know, funding forever. So it's it just, um, I really wish, you know, the founders I, I work with just like think about your business model really early on because, you know, even if it changes, that's okay, but you, you can't just, keep going without a sustainable business model. It has to keep like living on in some way. And if you can't even sustain it, it's just, it's just really tough to succeed. You know, I'm often surprised by most founders. They actually don't have uh, any business literacy, right? Like, like they don't have any business model generation literacy to a point where they can actually define what does a sustainable business model look like for their business? Have you ever worked with founders who are literally coming in with a cold start and kind of really prepping them to see their business from this model standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of what I do, um, you know, with some accelerator work I do. And my co-author, Alex Osterwalder, um, created the Business Model Canvas, which is pretty popular. It's it's in most accelerators now in business schools. But it's just like nine blocks you can put up and visualize things and see how things relate. But when I teach that to entrepreneurs, I, I remember one recently in uh, San Mateo where um, the guy had been working on this thing for like three years. And he said, this is the first time anyone's ever understood what I'm working on. And I thought... <laughs> wow, like that's terrifying. And it's also amazing that he, he's there now, right? But like the fact that you're such a deep domain expert, you understand all these like intricacies, but you can't explain like what you're actually doing is, is just tragic. So anything with storytelling, I mean, it's, it's how we learn is through, through telling stories. So um, yeah, I do work with a lot of founders or they've kind of used a canvas and they're not necessarily understood it or it wasn't useful. And so I try to reteach it in a way where it's like, no, no, this can actually be useful for you. Mm. And so um, I feel like there's a lot of maybe um, just really, really entry level kind of canvas out there that where people are teaching it and, and it, people don't get the value. They don't understand why I, they would fill it out. 
No, it, it goes to your point. They got to take it out of their heads. <laughs> All right. You know, because when you have an idea, it's almost like you want to iterate on the idea, but you never actually frame it up to say, this is what this idea can look like. It's five years, six years, seven years, or 10 years. Yeah. And it's like, and your risk moves around that thing, right? So it starts off with your customer and your value proposition. Then it quickly moves into revenue. Like, well, what's the price point for this thing? Mm-hmm. And then backstage, like, your activities and resources. Uh, can you scale this thing? Do you have to partner with people? You know, it, it just keeps moving around as you scale. So um, I think it's really hard to keep all that in your head. You just need some way to be able to just visualize it and understand it and communicate it, and then kind of go after the like the next most important thing to work on. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's one hundred percent true. David, we'd love to for you to share a little bit about well, given everything that's kind of currently going on within the fundraising landscape or even the, the public markets and venture capital landscape, you know, who have been some of the companies that you've been really impressed by or you've worked with in the past who you're looking like, wow, they had a, they thought about their business model from the ground up since day one and they continue to really grow at a, at a good pace. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised with some of the bigger companies I work with. Um, you know, I, I look at what Adobe did. It's amazing. Like they went from you put something on a CD or a DVD and stick it in your computer to completely cloud-based, right? And which is huge. Like most companies don't live through that transition. And if you look at a lot of their new apps, you know, they're testing them and making sure like people kind of scratch their head and they go, whoa, like Adobe built that thing. And, you know, it looks like a startup built that. So I think they're really invested in trying to work differently and distributed way. Like everything's, you know, teleconference, telepresence. Um, they, they really embrace kind of work from home. But as for smaller companies, I mean, there's a, there's a lot you can point to in the Bay Area where, um, and, and actually, you know, even outside the Bay Area, I think what's been really interesting to me is working kind of in the middle of the country more mm. often. Um, so last couple of years, I keep getting pulled into like the Midwest to work on things and and I'm really fascinated by sort of how these ideas have taken root there um, in the sense of founders kind of, it, it's like this pioneer spirit, right? They're like, yeah, yeah we're kind of in the frontier. We're going to do this ourselves. We're going to like be scrappy. And then, but what happens is they only raise when they need to scale. And I thought that's a really interesting dynamic because I think too often, you know, we say like, oh, you have to raise really early on. And yeah, I mean, you just give away more of your company that way, you know? And so being able to kind of bootstrap, get some traction, you know, Get 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 this like I don't know we we throw this term lifestyle business around like it's a negative thing but like if you're making ends meet and sustaining it doesn't necessarily need to be a negative thing but if you want to scale then raise so I've been mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised also with just a lot of the startups I meet in the Midwest in the middle of the country of you know um, you know out here if you get too much funding you're really not incentivized to kind of experiment your way and test things out. Not so um, I, I'm a little worried about that dynamic right now where companies get too much funding for a real something that's not going to work. And then they don't test their way. They blow through all the money and launch and it fails. And I, I don't think that's a sustainable thing. It's not even I mean, even for our economy, it's not a great approach. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, it's often in the valley. It's, uh, it's a startup spending it all on you know ads, Facebook ads. So it's going right back. To the, to the competition or other ads to just try to get visibility for their business, which makes absolutely no sense. So 100% agree with you. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, my, my perspective is that we're kind of seeing a, a different take, a kind of shift in terms of how consumers are seeing products, right? Like they're really more interested in businesses that value trust, privacy, and safety now. You know, I want to ask you, if you've been seeing kind of that same dynamic in the way, you know, businesses are trying to test their ideas, are they trying to hone in on like, Okay, what can we do to build more trust with with the customer? Yeah, and it's um, 
you know, there, there's a thing that I'm even worried about with testing ideas that people will sort of do it in an almost predatory way. And that's not my intent. My intent is obviously if you have something, don't waste all your time and effort, energy, building something that nobody cares about and like test your way through it. And I've always worried about people weaponizing this stuff, especially with fake news and everything. Um, so that's not what my intent is. My intent is for founders who are trying to build something and they're just not sure anybody cares. How do you navigate that? Right. Um, but with that aside, I do feel that people are starting to uh, kind of I don't know. I went to my first conference recently where they had a product ethics talk where yeah. I was like, finally, like, finally, we're talking about this stuff because like you need to be have some kind of moral compass when you're building something, you know, yeah. and I, I do think until the market really starts rewarding that and punishing the people who just, uh, you know, like this toxic work environment where all these abuse, you know, stories keep coming out and coming out. You, you don't keep giving those companies your business. You know, that's the only way they're going to finally change behavior sometimes. And so I do appreciate, you know, people's thinking about ethics more and more. Mm -hmm. um, like what happens when your boss comes to you and asks you to do something you feel like is unethical? Like, how do you handle that? And I think that's a conversation we need to have. And uh, we need to have because so often people go, well, my boss told me to do it. So I just went and, went and did that thing. And it's like, really? <laughs> like, that's not really a good defense. <laughs> no. So I, I think we're finally starting to have this way overdue conversation about this. And I think um, consumers voting with their wallets against companies that continue to just um, not behave well. You know, I think that's the only way they're going to listen to. Um, they're not going to it's going to vote with your wallet kind of thing. So uh, the good news is I do think we're starting to come around on this. It's just we have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of toxic work environments out there. Yeah, 130 percent, man. It's funny because uh, inclusive product ethics is something that we really value a lot here within Guide. You know, we'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, do you think a part of testing business ideas from day one and really putting on paper to understand, OK, how does your business sustain? Do you think that really think about the ethical and implication from day one is involved in that process as well, man? Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of have to. I mean, I, I have this underlying theory here of I don't think you can have, um, you know, this unethical beginning and really ever kind of pivot to something ethical. Right. Mm. And so this might sound somewhat controversial, but just look at Facebook, like yeah. the way Facebook started, it was basically a way to check out like female classmates at colleges. Right. And so it had a kind of, I, I won't say completely unethical, but it certainly wasn't like a strong moral compass in the beginning. Right. And then you yeah. scale that thing and scale it and scale it and scale it and look at where they are now. And you're like, oh, why aren't they making these ethical decisions? It's like, well, look how they started, you know? Yeah. Um, same thing with Uber, right? Look how Uber started. It was look cool with black cars in front of VCs so I could just, the status symbol, right? And they're like, oh, why isn't Uber doing all this stuff to save workers? It's like, look how it started, you know? So I do think how a company starts, um, if you don't have a strong moral compass, right? then it's not like that gets better at scale. <laughs> it just amplifies things and it has more uh, ramifications. So I think earlier on, um, like I don't necessarily have a tool for that, you know, I think it's something you have to have in your in your moral fiber, but basically having an idea of, okay, this is like our principles, this is our, like kind of our North Star. And, but if you don't have that at the beginning, I think it just gets worse as you scale. It just has, you know, just bigger and bigger impacts on the economy and society in, in general. Yeah. No, it's so powerful that you say that because, you know, the 
the the rare opportunity that I think founders have now today is is that the 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 markets have kind of self-corrected themselves given COVID nineteen and all the varying problems that it's caused in healthcare and uh, across other industries. And to your point, David, it's like there's this really rare opportunity now to say, okay, what are the ethical implications of my company, and am I building a business, you know, that actually serves the world, all right, like actually gives true value and um in this new environment yeah and it's not always clear right like i've been on projects where literally we we stopped halfway through and said are we going to regret doing this you know like we're doing it for for this purpose but it could be repurposed for something else you know yeah. and i think um we, we talk about just ha having more diverse leadership teams not just you know in in race and ethnicity but also in thought and experience you know, it's only going to make your startup and product like more resilient over time. Mm -hmm. Because what I've seen too often is you get a lot of people that think the same together. They don't really take in consideration or even aware of some of the abuses that can happen on a platform or, or, or with their product. And they just like bake all those biases right in. And if they just had a more diverse kind of beginning, then I feel like a lot of this could have been prevented. And I, I feel like that's a lot of the hard work we need to do is, um, yeah, I, I, the Black Lives Matter matters T-shirts and everything like that's great and changing your logo, whatever. But like, you have to have a diverse leadership team, or none of this matters. Like, you're not going to hire diverse talent if they look at your leadership team and it's all old white dudes. Like, it's just not going to happen. So, I feel like <laughs> there's companies that have to do the hard work behind the scenes, and I'm I'm not sure how many are willing to do that work yet. It's it's going to be interesting over the next five, ten years to see how this manifests. But I think. We're at this like tipping point right now, and and we do have to have my more diverse companies, more diverse leadership teams, and overall, like the products and things we use from a day to day basis are are going to have more impact. They're going to be more thoughtful about different types of people using it instead of just like this rich kid who can afford like a really expensive app, you know. So there's just a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, one hundred and ten percent. It's so funny you're saying this because you know the the. The, the funny thing about, you know, building products and apps in the family, in, not in the family, but in the, in the Valley, is that it's often built for like a really elite cohort of people. And then and then we try to like see if we can scale it out beyond the Valley and it often never works. And it's almost the same model you see every single time. Yeah, I, I just remember like kind of um, the previous administration, right? Like when Obama came and it was basically saying like, you're building these apps, but like, so these people don't have smartphones, you know, like you can't just solve this with an app, you know? And I think sometimes we kind of like the echo chamber worries me a little bit that people feel yeah. like, oh, if I just build an app, this is going to solve this thing. And it doesn't always work. Um, mm -hmm. Often, like people just don't have access to the thing you're trying to build. And so, yeah, I just think overall, we just have a lot of work to do with, again, diversity, especially at the leadership level. I think it has to start there. Yeah, 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 one hundred and ten percent. You know, who have been some of your you know favorite leaders in kind of your career that you kind of like really um leaned in on when it comes to whether it be uh you know thinking about how do you form an ethical team or how do you test your business ideas? Yeah, I, I I've had the really the pleasure of working with so many amazing people over the years. Um, I'm really inspired by Eric Ries who wrote Lean Startup. I've had the pleasure of working Shot with him. Eric Ries, he's awesome. Yeah, I've had to, so I've, he and I worked together on some stuff uh, in the past, and um, he was a, a big, big driver behind Neo, which is a company that, that I was at here out in San Francisco. Um, you know, my, my co-author, Alex Osterwalder, still really, really influential. Uh, just the ability to kind of visualize things and conceptually kind of break things apart is something I'm always trying to get better at and learn from him. 
But then there are just so many like amazing leaders through history that you can kind of pull inspiration from, um, you know, like Drucker and Deming and all these like old, like I don't say old school management gurus, but a lot of stuff they were saying then still kind of applies now. And so I feel like, um, you know, some of the people like Donna Meadows who, who wrote Thinking in Systems, th there's, there's, I feel like there's a, a need for present day to mm -hmm. take some of these older concepts and just make them more consumable. You know, like, wow, just think like if we understood systems thinking, how we could see things that were related, you know, in a way and we're like, oh, that's why this is happening. It's not like I blame all my hate and anger over here at this, like, there's a, there's a, like a system here and, and that's what's the problem. And um, I feel like um, there's still a need there for people to come back around and just explain stuff in a way that people get it. And, and that's what I'm trying to do with testing ideas and testing business ideas. But it really can be applied to so many different things. It's just, can I explain it in a way where people get it? And usually those are the kind of leaders I, I look to or don't, don't like use a bunch of jargon with me and talk over my head, like explain it really simply in words that I can get it and you can help people. So that's kind of, it's, it's, it's a theme of people that I uh, draw inspiration from. Yeah, and it's a, it's 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 quite an art too, right? Really simplifying something that's super co complex and actually fitting it into the lexicon of a business or some or a founder that doesn't really even know how to build a business. Yeah, and so much of it's like uh, once you get co-founders on, right? You're going to have to explain it to them, right? Like communication is going to have to occur um, in a way that that's that's simple and people get it. And so that's what I try to do: like simple but not too simple. You know, just make you think about things, get you to have the right kind of conversations. Uh, get you to focus. That's probably one of the biggest things when I'm mentoring founders is this lack of focus. It's like, cause you can go all these different directions and the idea of like, okay, what's, where are your risk? What's the riskiest thing now? And then mm. what can you do to experiment and learn about that risk is sort of my style just because the focus mechanism, like lack of focus, you'll just spin and spin and spin and not make progress in any direction. So it's just focus is, is a big thing. Mm, mm, powerful, powerful. You know, David, would love for you to share a little bit about, you know, where can the people find your next book? Because it sounds as if you're working on something, man. Are you thinking about writing a, a, another one, man? Uh, I'm thinking really early stage thing. So uh, the last book was launched in um, November. So that was my co-author. That I mean, that's it, that was his third. He's actually written another one since then. He's, he's like a machine. Um, so he wrote a new one called Invincible Company, which uh, is all about patterns and, and doing all this research across history about different patterns of business models. It's really deep read. Um, but for me, I mean, the last book came out in November. Um, it's still just getting started in a way like, um, you know, the pandemic hit. So all my, all my you know, book tour is virtual, right? But um, it's really promising when I see it picked up by accelerators, picked up by universities. I'm teaching at Harvard um, wow. this, uh, this fall. Um, with uh, some of the book, it's been picked up by Stanford and by other universities, but also just just like kind of accessible around the world. It's in um, I think almost like ten different languages already. So it's 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 really going to have I think a broad lasting appeal. Of I'm stuck. What do I do to get unstuck? You know, it's almost like an encyclopedia or a library that way. So um, that's my thought. And then the next thing will be a little different because I don't think I can, I don't think I have another one of those books in me <laughs> near term. It's, it's pretty hard to, to write. Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. Well, we should have you back onto the show, uh, you know, after after the next book, you know, we can help you promote. And, you know, I want to leave you with, you know, what is your one powerful takeaway for our, our guide community on, you know, how they can build something that they love? Yeah, I, I love the saying of um, 
strong opinion held loosely. And so it's from uh, Ben Sappho, I believe. And, and basically it's have an opinion like of what you're trying to do, but be open to the idea of being wrong, right? So have an opinion, right? A strong opinion, but hold it loosely. Like don't be so married to it that you explain away everything that doesn't reinforce your beliefs, especially when you're building a business. Um, like I said, the first one I started, we thought we were B to C and we ended up being B to B. And so yeah. we still had a vision of like what we were trying to do, but we just had the complete wrong market. So I think just be open to the idea of being wrong is so much of uh, a mindset that'll benefit you um, going forward and not just business, but you know, in life in general. That's so powerful, man. David, man, it's truly an honor having you on the show. We definitely have to have you back on around when you launch the next book or you're doing your book tour post COVID-19 when we're all able to go outside again. You know, thank you so much for, for joining us today, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate you, man. Talk to you soon, man. All right. Peace. Take care. That was the amazing David Bland. Make sure you go check out his work. We'll definitely make sure I share a link to his LinkedIn as well as his, his website with you so you can learn more about Prequel, his business strategy and advisement company where he really helps enterprises and entrepreneurs learn how do they formulate a business model that sustains and is a knockout idea for their customers as well. With that said, that was today's Monday morning, I'm sorry, not Monday, Tuesday morning, lovely episode of Guy Live BDB Jam Session. If you love this episode, make sure you share it with your friend's friend and tell your friend to tell you, tell their boss to watch this episode featuring the amazing David Bland. Later on this lovely, lovely evening, we're going to be having another evening episode that you can tune in on. So make sure you join in and you know show us some love, especially if you're tuning in from Oakland, California. With that said, peace, love, and abundance, and talk to you all soon. Peace.